So welcome to a new class series, Discipleship 102. In this series, Jesus focuses on what it means to work in the kingdom of heaven, what it looks like and what it doesn't look like. He now knows exactly how his life will end and that the end is coming quickly. But his disciples have a lot to learn. Jesus already taught Discipleship 101. That's what the Sermon on the Mount was at the beginning of his ministry. But he's got a lot more disciples now, something like 70. In Discipleship 102, we'll see Jesus hit on many of the same themes he taught in the Sermon on the Mount, specifically what it means to be light in the world and what the consequences are. Jesus begins teaching his disciples as they walk through the region of Galilee. He tells them again, explicitly, that he will be delivered into the hands of men and will be killed. But after three days, he will rise. The disciples cannot take it in. They do not understand. It's like he's speaking a foreign language to them, and they're afraid to ask him to clarify. This does not fit their preconceived notions of how things are going to be, of how things should be. So they fall back on their belief that Jesus has come to be a great king and they're going to rule right beside him, which they are, of course, just not in the way they think. As they walk, the disciples fall a little ways behind and start arguing about which one of them will be most important in the new kingdom. When they finally get home to Capernaum, Jesus asked them what they were arguing about on the road. Crickets. <laughs> they don't want to tell him. You can almost hear Jesus sigh as he sits down. He calls the 12, the leaders, to him and says, anyone who wants to be the first of all, the chief, the principal, the most important one, must be the last, the lowest part of all, the one who serves everyone else. The Greek word here is diakonos, which means deacon, the minister, the server, the wait staff, the errand runner, the one standing in the back, watching for any need and jumping in to fill it. How beautiful would our churches be if this is how all deacons ministers and leaders saw themselves as waiting to see what the spirit is doing among the people and jumping in with support, running copies, setting up chairs, offering rides, giving encouragement, dusting off skin knees, and otherwise staying out of the way. Jesus pulls a little child to him and says, Anyone who welcomes someone as unimportant as these little children in my name welcomes me. And they don't just welcome me, they welcome the one who sent me. Matthew says, Jesus tells the 12 disciples, they cannot even enter the kingdom of heaven unless they become as unimportant as these little children. It is the lowliest, most unimportant people who truly lead in God's kingdom. How would we behave if we stopped and considered that they are the ones who will be our advocates when our own works are brought to light? What have we done for them? I don't think the 12 get it because John pipes up and says, well, we've still got a problem, Jesus. There are fake disciples out there. We saw somebody throwing demons out in your name, but we made him stop because he's not one of us. And Jesus is like, oh, good grief. Don't stop him. If he's doing works of power in my name, he's not bad mouthing me. He's not against us. He's for us. Anyone who helps you, even just gives you a cup of water in my name will be compensated. Whoever is not against you is for you. 
(laughs) As they travel, the disciples give Jesus lots of teachable moments. As they walk through Samaria, headed to Jerusalem, they try to stop in a Samaritan village and are rejected. The Samaritans don't want any Jewish miracle workers in their town. The brothers James and John say to Jesus, do you want us to like call fire down from heaven to consume them? (laughs) See why Jesus nicknamed James and John sons of thunder. Jesus says, no, no, I don't want you to do any such thing. These disciples are out of control. What is Jesus going to do? They trudge on down the road from that Samaritan village and up comes a man saying, I will follow you no matter where you go. But Jesus says, yeah, well, foxes have dens and birds have nests, but the son of man has nowhere to lay his head. Jesus is certainly giving the disciples an object lesson. He wants them all to understand they must not cling to their comfort or their possessions, or anything else on earth. I think that man must have gone off disappointed. We don't hear from him again. To another man, Jesus says, come, follow me. And the man says, oh, okay, but please let me go and bury my father. And Jesus says, let the dead bury their own dead. Your job is to go and proclaim the kingdom of God. Now, that sounds awfully harsh and inhumane, but I don't think Jesus is being as harsh as he might sound to modern ears. You see, in his day, individuals are buried twice. The first time, their bodies are cleaned, anointed, wrapped in strips of cloth, and laid out in a cave to dry. This happens within 24 hours, and mourning would have normally taken seven days. Jesus would not expect someone to come to him during this time, I don't think. That would go against God's overarching law of compassion towards one another, right? And it would be dishonoring towards the man's father if his son just up and left. And that would break one of the Ten Commandments. So I think it is almost certainly the second burial that the new disciple is referring to. The second burial occurs about a year after death. The dried remains are gathered and placed in a smallish box called an ossuary, much like what we do nowadays with cremated remains. The box is then stored in the family burial cave. That this man is referring to the second burial is just my interpretation. It's just one of one possible one is, you know, other scholars agree, but the text doesn't actually tell us. Nevertheless, either way, Jesus is calling the man away from the cycle of death and into life. The task at hand is far more important than gathering the dry remains of the dead. Then a third man comes and says, well, I want to follow you. Just let me go back and tell my family goodbye. And Jesus says, no one with their hand on the plow, but their face turned back is well suited for the kingdom of God. I think Jesus senses a much deeper issue with this potential disciple. If you want to be well suited for the kingdom of God, for living in it, working in it, participating in it, and being part of it, then you cannot keep looking towards the past. The work is now. Walk with God now. Pay attention to what you're doing and to the people who are doing it with you and to the people who need your help. Let go of your past. Jesus is calling you as you are now, today. So some time ago, when they were in particular danger, Jesus sent the 12 away, two by two, to preach the good news on their own. He told them to stay in the home of an upstanding citizen in whatever town they were in, and that if the town did not welcome them, they should shake the dust off their feet and move on. 
that was some time ago. The disciples and Jesus have been back together for a while now. And there are lots more disciples now. Jesus calls what seems to be his entire class of disciples together. It's like 70 or 72, depending on which manuscript you're reading. This time, he sends all 70 out, two by two. But it seems to be less about them being in danger and more about them doing advanced work in every town and village Jesus is planning on going through. He's sending out 35 pairs of disciples. So that's a pretty big mission effort. And they need some guidance before they set out. The instructions sound a lot like they did before, which makes sense, right? But this time, Jesus is much more detailed. I guess because the 70 are less experienced and need the more granular instructions. Or perhaps Jesus learned from how things went the first time with the 12. (laughs) I don't know. But clearly, things are more urgent now. Jesus says, the harvest is plentiful, but the laborers are few. Pray to the Lord of the harvest that he will send more laborers. Go, see, I send you out as lambs among wolves. Do not take anything with you, no money, no baggage, not even extra sandals, and don't speak to anyone on the road. Does sound dangerous, doesn't it? Jesus tells them, when you go into a house, first say, peace to this house. If there is a person of peace there, your peace will settle upon them. But if not, your peace will return to you. Now, that is such an interesting concept. This whole idea that our greeting is an actual sending of peace to someone and it establishes a connection that they can choose to refuse. Jesus tells the disciples, this must be the first thing they do upon entering a home. Jesus wants the disciples to establish real relationships with their hosts. He says, if you are welcomed, stay in that home the entire time you're in that town. Don't hop from home to home. Accept whatever gifts of food and drink they offer you, for you are workers and these are your wages. I I wonder if, if your wages are um, not just the food and drink, but also the relationship. Heal the sick and the frail. And when you do, Tell them, the kingdom of God has drawn near to you. Jesus wants to make sure the disciples give absolutely all the credit to God. This is vital. And just a note here, you'll notice that sometimes Jesus says kingdom of heaven, and sometimes he says kingdom of God. Matthew is the writer who prefers kingdom of heaven, while Mark and Luke prefer kingdom of God. Although there has been much ink spilled trying to differentiate the two, I think we can use one of our backpack tools to show that the terms can be used interchangeably. The tool we'll use is is to compare the stories of Matthew, Mark, and Luke and find places they tell the exact same story and see how they use the terms. In the Sermon on the Mount, for example, when Jesus says, blessed are the poor, the reward in Matthew is the kingdom of heaven, while Luke says it's the kingdom of God. And later, Jesus says John the Baptist is the greatest person ever born. And yet, in Matthew, Jesus says that even the least person in the kingdom of heaven is greater than John while Luke has the exact same quote, but uses the phrase kingdom of God. The interchangeability of these phrases holds true with Mark too. In Matthew, Jesus says the kingdom of heaven is like a mustard seed. But in Mark, Jesus says the kingdom of God is like a mustard seed. So in this class, we're not going to go down a rabbit hole trying to differentiate these phrases. Our backpack tool reveals to us that they are interchangeable. 
So let's get back to Jesus' instructions to the 70 disciples. Jesus says, if you are not welcomed in a place, if your peace is rejected and returns to you, if the relationship is refused, then go into the streets and say, we wipe off even the dust of your town that has clung to our feet. But know this, the kingdom of God has drawn near. So either way, whether the town welcomes the disciples and are healed or whether they reject the disciples, the disciples are to let the people know that the kingdom of God has come near to them. It's all about God's offer of healing and wholeness, not about how the disciples are treated. That doesn't mean, though, that God doesn't see when the disciples are mistreated. Not at all. Jesus says, if you do get rejected, don't worry. In that day, it will be more bearable for Sodom than for that town. There's our red flag, in that day, a phrase that in the Bible means the end time. The town's rejection of the disciples mirrors the sin of Sodom, according to Jesus. For Sodom's sin was not a sin of sexuality. It was a sin of self-centeredness. According to Ezekiel 16.49, God says Sodom's sin was arrogant pride, fullness of food, insulated peace, and failing to help the afflicted and the poor. This is what national, state, and civic sin looks like. God is serious about this. It is a theme found throughout the Hebrew Bible in both the law and the prophets, and Jesus is reiterating it here. This is a big deal to God. Then Jesus slips into prophecy, as he tends to do when he gets wound up over something important. He says, woe to you, Chorazin and Bethsaida, you cities of Galilee. If the Gentile cities of Tyre and Sidon had seen what you've seen, they'd already be sitting in sackcloth and ashes. It will be more tolerable for them than for you at the judgment. And you, Capernaum, will you be raised to heaven? No, you will be brought down to Hades, a Greek word which means Sheol and the grave. Jesus' gaze returns to his disciples. He says, whoever listens to you, listens to me. And whoever rejects you, rejects me and the one who sent me. I don't know about you, but somehow I find Jesus' words about rejection really comforting. Maybe because I have experienced it so deeply and because in my work as a pastor, I fight so fiercely against the rejection of people by their families and faith communities. When rejection happens, it's good to know that Jesus is right beside you experiencing it too, and comforting you. Well, off the 70 disciples go, and when they return to Jesus after their mission trip, they are filled with delight and tell him, even the demons obey us in your name. Now, in this context, remember, that would mean they'd actually been out there healing people in Jesus' name, and it worked. They are so excited. <laughs> Jesus says, I saw Satan, the adversary, fall like lightning from heaven. See, I, I give you authority over all serpents and scorpions. You can overcome all the power of the hostile enemy. They cannot hurt you. Nothing can harm you. But be sure your joy is because your names are written in heaven. And not because you have power here on earth to make spirits submit to you. And Jesus, also filled with joy, says, Our words are the same, Father. 
The Greek here is often translated as I confess you or I praise you. But what Jesus actually says here is that he and the father are, quote, out of the same word, meaning they're on the same page. They're of one mind. Jesus exclaims, you have hidden these things from the wise and learned, yet revealed them to the simple minded. Can you hear the relief in Jesus' voice? He didn't think the disciples were ever going to get it. The last time they tried to heal someone, they failed because of their lack of faith. But now all 70 of them seem to be on the right track. Jesus continues his prayer of rejoicing. All things have been handed over to me by my father. Who knows the son if not the father? And who knows the father if not the son and those to whom the son might wish to reveal him? This is another one of those passages that is taken out of context and used as a proof text to try to bar people who are not Christian, from God. But it doesn't sound to me as if Jesus is being exclusionary here at all. The whole tone of this prayer is relief and thanksgiving that he and God are on the same page. I I don't think the distinction between Jews and Samaritans and pagans and anyone else is in view here, right? Jesus has been so free with his ministry. He's revealed himself to anyone and everyone, Jews, Gentiles, soldiers, beggars, the learned, the proud, the simple, and the humble, everyone. Jesus is doing everything he can to reveal God to absolutely everyone, Then he turns to his disciples and says, You are so blessed to see what you have seen. Many prophets and kings before you wanted to see this, but did not. They wanted to hear what you have heard, but did not. And then Jesus says some of the most quoted words in scripture. They only appear in Matthew's gospel. Come to me, all you who are weary, and I will give you rest. If you look at the Greek, Jesus is saying, Come to me, all you who are toiling away, burdened and overloaded, and I will give you refreshment. At this point, Jesus and the disciples seem to have finally made it through Samaria, because the next stories happen in or near Jerusalem. This next one is hugely important and shows up in all three synoptic gospels. I think Jesus must be teaching in the temple courtyard or very nearby, because both Matthew and Mark set it in the context of debates with the Sadducees who run the temple and with the Pharisees who are listening in. A lawyer stands up to try to test Jesus. Now, there's a couple of things the Greek reveals here. One is that this isn't a regular religious lawyer, what is typically called a scribe in the Bible. This is a different word entirely, meaning a real expert in the law, kind of like the difference between a judge and a Supreme Court justice. This guy is a big shot. Furthermore, when it says he's testing Jesus, it isn't the regular word for test either. It's got a prefix that indicates this is a super test, far beyond what is normal or reasonable. So what on earth does this big shot legal expert use as the ultimate test question? He says, teacher, what must I do to inherit eternal life? I don't know why this expert thought this was such a tough question. Jesus gets asked this question by other folks. It's a common question, even now in our modern times. In this context, Jesus wisely does not answer the question directly. Instead, Jesus asks the lawyer, 
What do you think the law says about this? So from Jesus' words, I gather that the undercurrent here is that Jesus has been challenging the law and that this is somehow a trick question having to do with the law. And this guy is a big shot lawyer. So, you know, everything in this whole, this whole context is about what must, I think it could be phrased, what must I do under the law to inherit eternal life? And so when Jesus asks the lawyer, turns the question back right back on him, the lawyer quotes two laws, one from Deuteronomy 6.5, the other from Leviticus 19.18, saying, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your might, and with all your mind. And you must love your neighbor as you love yourself. And Jesus says, yes, do this and you will live. But notice that Jesus takes off the eternal part. Jesus says, do this and you will live, not do this and you will have eternal life. That is so Jesus, isn't it? He's very focused on our lives here and now. Doing these things brings life now, immediately. And that life certainly continues forever. But to Jesus, the now part is the important part. And this has been his message all along. It's not about getting into heaven after you die. Jesus keeps telling people the kingdom of heaven is here at hand now. Well, Matthew tells this same story just a little differently. He says, when the expert asked Jesus, which is the greatest commandment in the law, Jesus answers in the same way, but adds, all the law and the prophets hang on these two commandments. And in Mark's version, the expert then tells Jesus, you have answered wisely. These are more important than all the sacrifices and burnt offerings. And Jesus says to him, you are not far from the kingdom of God. Beautiful. But in Luke's version, we have an alternative ending. In Luke's version, the lawyer does not respond well. Instead, he tries to one-up Jesus by saying, ah, but who is my neighbor? Which would clearly be pointing to the, the lawyer feeling like the law is saying it's only your Jewish neighbors, it's only the Jews. Um, that is the implication here. And Jesus answers with a story that is found only here in Luke in his alternative ending. Once upon a time, there was a man traveling from Jerusalem to Jericho. So we know our geography and we know right away, this is a, a Jewish man traveling within Judea. He's just traveling due east from basically from Jerusalem to Jericho. Suddenly, the man is set upon by robbers who beat him and strip him and leave him for dead by the side of the road. It just so happens a priest is traveling this same road. Oh, thank goodness. A holy man will have compassion and stop, right? But no, Jesus says, when the priest sees the man, he passes by on the other side. Really? The priest, the pastor doesn't stop to help a bleeding man? Is he too busy? Is the man too dirty? Or is the priest afraid he might get robbed if he stops? Maybe he thinks this is an elaborate trick and the bleeding man is just pretending so he can take advantage of the priest's generosity. Jesus says, next, a Levite, a temple worker, comes by sees the man, and passes by on the other side as well. Now that can't be right. Surely the Levite, the church secretary, the deacon, the head of the parish council would have compassion for this poor beaten man. But no. And then the worst possible thing happens, at least from a Jew's point of view. A Samaritan comes by. Samaritans hate Jews. 
the Jews destroyed the Samaritan's temple just a hundred years earlier. A Samaritan town just refused hospitality to Jesus and the disciples, remember? And in the story of the Samaritan woman at the well, the woman couldn't believe Jesus would even talk to her. Samaritans and Jews don't speak to each other. They certainly don't help each other. I mean, the Samaritans is just as likely to kick this guy as anything else. They're enemies, and there's a history of animosity between them. But Jesus says, the Samaritan sees the man, and his heart goes out to him strongly. It's that emotional rush of compassion and pity and connection that we feel when we see someone who has been hurt and is in need. He bandages the man's wounds, pouring oil and wine on them, loads him up on his own donkey and takes him to an inn where he himself takes care of him. And the next day, when the man has to leave to go about his business, Jesus says he leaves money for the man's care with the innkeeper and promises to come back and pay any additional balance due. A Samaritan did this for a Jew? Jesus asked the legal expert, which of these three men was a neighbor to the man who had been robbed? The priest? The Levite? or the Samaritan. The lawyer can't even bring himself to say the word Samaritan. He replies, the one who had compassion for him. Jesus says, exactly. You go and do the same. Remember the context for this conversation. This hotshot lawyer has asked Jesus what one must do to have eternal life. And Jesus says, if you want life at all, actually, you must love the Lord your God with all your heart and all your soul and all your might and all your mind. And you must love your neighbor as yourself. And Jesus uses this story to clarify that our neighbor is everyone we run across. It includes our religious enemies as well as our political enemies. It is everyone we look down upon, everyone we are too busy for, everyone we feel is beneath us or not worth our time and attention, everyone who is working against us and spewing lies about us, everyone we come in contact with is our neighbor, and we must treat them with the care and compassion we would treat ourselves. The story of the Good Samaritan is typically used as a children's story, but it is a deep theme in scripture. Its roots go back to the very core of what it means to love God, and it is a mirror of how God loves us. Today's discussion questions may stretch us way out of our comfort zones. I'm trying to bring these stories into our modern context with as much of a shock factor as Jesus was bringing to the table here. If my questions shock you, please forgive me. Know that I am only trying to sit in the same discomfort Jesus was generating among those who heard him teach. Hey, welcome back. <laughs> I hope you had time to talk about all this stuff. Uh, I I um, saw in the chat, I saw Martha. You're, I, I'm probably catching you with your mouth full here, but... Um, <laughs> <laughs> that's a hazard when we're doing this at lunchtime you know y'all are all welcome mm -hmm. during this it's not gonna bother me not one little bit um but uh you had put in the comments mind blown and I didn't know what that was in relation to I didn't see when it came up do you remember yes I do it was when you mentioned that one of the gospel writers 
says that do these things and you will have life and did not use eternal life. And I had never caught that um, that wording difference. And I just find it especially helpful. It doesn't preclude eternal life. No. But but God is saying, do these things. Life is happening right now. Mm-hmm. Yeah. That's crazy. It's amazing. It's yeah. freeing. It's open. It opens it opens us up, right? It gives me chills. Mm-hmm. Yes. So the first question was um a Samaritan to the Jews was the worst sort of apostate. Someone who twisted Judaism, rewrote the Torah, and worshiped in a place and a manner that was anathema to God. And I just put a little footnote down there. I hope you read it, that this was is not intended to be, you know, pejorative towards Samaritans. There are still Samaritans today. So just so you know, this is just how it how the, the Jews of the time felt about them. So mm-hmm. who or what group is your other? How would it feel if the story of the Good Samaritan was reworded to use the following three people, a pastor, a church deacon, and fill in the blank other? And I wanted you, the question of who is your other, I wanted you, I put a note down there that that was to be an internal answer, not named, Mm -hmm. because we are from all different walks of life. Who knows your other might be the person in the discussion group with you. So (laughs) we're not naming the other, (laughs) whatever it is. Um, But what for your other, um, how would it feel if it was your other, if it was the people that you admired the most were the first two, the people that you emulate, the people that you think you are, and then it was the other Mm -hmm. Who was, who who helped? We agreed that it would be really hard. <laughs> <laughs> That's about as far as we got. Yeah, it would be eye opening too. Yeah, yeah. Someone it, in our group made an excellent point that I'm still um, working through. I can't repeat it as eloquently as they did, but. The first two, the preacher and the church leader, you have a higher standard and expectations. And your other, the standard is lower. There's not an expectation. If something happens positive, amazing. That's wonderful. You did not expect that. But your other, your standard is much lower. And it made me think about our expectations of people. The first two would be disappointing that they didn't help. But then you go to that last one, and it's shocking that they did help. What do you do with that? You got to process it. One thought that just occurred to me now is would we see the actions of the other as somehow suspect having an ulterior motive? And, you know, because of our own lens that we are looking at them through to say, well, they're not genuinely caring about this person. They they think they're going to get something out of this. And we would still have that, you know, have a tendency to have that filter and not accept that this was actually an act of genuine human compassion and kindness. I think to get the real message message from the story, I think you have to to set aside that possibility that they were were not acting out of genuine compassion or had some other motive. Yeah, it was it was a rather extensive act of compassion, wasn't it? Yeah. 
Well, and and the and the text actually said his heart. It used a special word in Greek that meant his heart went out to him strongly, the same way Jesus' heart went out to that widow whose son had died in name mm-hmm. that we just studied. Um, the um, the idea that someone who is other doesn't feel compassion, wouldn't feel compassion, doesn't love doesn't fall in love, doesn't love their children, doesn't, you know, do kind things for the neighbor, uh, is not unusual. I think even if we don't explicitly think that, it surprises us. It's like saying that, um, you know, being surprised when somebody, when somebody that you think is, only this in a positive way couldn't also be that in a positive way in this particular case you know who who are the smart kids at school there we categorize in school and so we don't expect sometimes um that you know the valedictorian is also these other things And um, I think relationship, it's when we other some other a group so far that we are um, not in relationship with them because we wouldn't live in their neighborhood or we wouldn't speak to them if there was somebody on the left of us versus on the right of us on the bus who are we going to have a conversation with. We don't even bother to find out to learn from, to be, you know, to understand what's important to them, even when some things that are important to them are things that are unimportant or even anathema to us, to me. Mm-hmm. And by the way, Gail, way to use the big words in that question. <laughs> <laughs> Sorry. <laughs> I, I tell you the what to build on what Ma- Martha just said is it seems to me that the amount of shock that we would feel that's whoever our other is would stop and be that generous with us is a measure of two things. It's a measure of how we see them in that the expectation of their humanity is low. It's our measure of how we view their humanity. And the second thing it's a measure of is a measure of our pride. It's a measure of how we see ourselves. Pardon? I think it's also a reminder that Nobody is all good or all bad. We tend to think of our other as being all bad. But when we see the other to have compassion and do something kind, it reminds us, oh, yeah, everybody has has some good in them. We're all human. We're all human. Mm-hmm. Um, okay, well, let's move on to the next couple of questions. It's Uh, I said, it's interesting that the entire sequence of stories today is kicked off by the disciples arguing about who's going to be the most important one in the kingdom of heaven. Jesus says, the one who serves the others. (laughs) Is it possible to be part of the kingdom of heaven and have life slash eternal life by simply loving God and loving others? I love I love the word simply. As if that's a simple thing to do. As opposed to having other criteria. Yeah, I, I was gonna say I took that as not having all the other trappings of a specific religious sect. Mm-hmm. Uh, my opinion is yes. 
because absolutely yes it's, it's yeah. very clear that there's nothing in there that says you have to follow these rites you have to be circumcised baptized say the the, the magic words um any of that your heart just has to be in the right place <laughs> i told a story in our group i'll repeat it briefly here um i i used to carpool with some girls on the street school because it was silly to take two cars you know and they're islamic and i would we would talk about everything you know through the course of a year and one of the days we were talking about something about god and i referred to god as allah and she was like how do you know and i said well, I love God. I love, I love him. And the surprise in her that I would recognize her supreme being in, in her words and her trappings of what she knew. But then I was explaining, I learned so much in that moment about my God too, you know, because it's still the same supreme being. It's just how you get there. Mm-hmm. What you're exposed to. Who who indoctrinates you with what? It was, it's very interesting that my, you know, that, and, and it is no accident that my question was worded in Jesus' words alone. If you change it f- from a question to a statement, Jesus himself said in these stories, it is possible to be part of the kingdom of heaven and have eternal life by simply loving God with everything you have and loving each other as you love yourself. That is the bar. That is the only bar that Jesus set. One could argue not only that it's possible to get to the kingdom of heaven, but it's necessary. Yes. If you do those things, you you will be. So you'll be in the kingdom of heaven. You mm-hmm. are. Absolutely. It's just think, go ahead. Go. Sorry. Um for for me, something that I'm realizing as I as we're kind of both in this deconstruction and reconstruction of our faith is for some of us, we've been taught to view God in this box, this binary way of looking at things It's either, or it has to fit into this parameter and everything outside of it is the enemy. You know, everything outside of it is going to keep you away from him or them. I am so grateful because during this last couple of months of traveling, and, and really just trying to get out of that box. I have, I've never been an outdoor person, but because of this trip, it has forced me to be outdoors more often than I have wanted to. And it has been incredible to see God's beauty in nature that I have never really taken the time. I mean, yes, I have noticed sunsets before. And yes, I've gotten to see the eclipse and that has been mind blowing, but Every stop when I am looking at the different terrain of that state and what that state has to offer and the new flowers or the cactus, whatever it is, I'm, I find myself drawn more to God and beginning to, to get a glimpse of his vast creativity that I have never once seen before because I've always kept it in this box. So to answer the question, I do believe that there is uh, unbelievable way that he has created this world everyone including any everything that inhabits it to be able to connect with them in whatever way fits for that unique individual and so when we see that then we can begin to appreciate and respect people's way that they connect with God whether it's through another religion whether it's through mysticism whether it's through astrology without the fear that was once given to some of us with our faith of like nope if you come out of this box it's not of god 
So it's been really freeing to see that there's so much more to God in ways that we can connect when we allow our, ourselves to kind of begin to come out of that box that we've been programmed to stay in. So a resounding yes. Yes. <laughs> yes. <laughs> And there was, there was a follow-on question that said, is it possible to love God without fully comprehending God, without being Jewish or Christian or anything at all? And even if you do not know the Bible or perhaps even twist it as the Samaritans did. And I, you know, that's what you all have all been kind of talking about, um, but my, the last question was, what does Jesus mean when he says to love God? To love others, too. I mean, it's all about love. Mm-hmm. And it doesn't matter what you call God, what name you use or term. I think that if you're able to help other people or appreciate nature or whatever. If you don't have God's love, you're not going to have the same compassion. I mean, everybody is having their own communication with God and the love that you feel is from God. So everybody, no matter what their religion is, loves God. Or if they don't have a religion. Or if they don't have a religion. I mean, I, I've known, you know, people that I got in trouble one time at church with one of my friends. At, she was the a Sunday school teacher and she was mad because I allowed one of my friends in our neighborhood was Wiccan. And she said, you left them around your child. And it's like, yeah. Why wouldn't I? She babysits sometimes. And she's like, I can't believe you let your kids go into her house. And I'm like, okay. <laughs> I just, that was all I, because I was not, it was just blown away that somebody, instead of knowing somebody just on the assumption that what they believed was made them a totally evil person. And I think that's a problem humans have. We like to categorize everybody into a little box. Like, you know, you got them in a box and then that's how it stays. And you don't expect people to flow in between the boxes. I think love is hard to define, but easy to see. You know, when, when people are doing things that are not love and calling it love, right? Mm-hmm. We, we there's something in us that knows what love is but what does it mean to love god with all our heart our mind our soul and everything about us martha did you do this i i think what it looks like is to love what god loves yeah mm-hmm. yeah i would broaden i would broaden the word god to something like goodness if you love goodness and there's lots of different things that are good um if you dedicate yourself if you act based on whether you call it god or love or goodness or whatever if you if you act with that as your foundation i think that's what jesus means by love god and actually jesus himself responded to somebody who called him good and said, why are you calling me good? The only one who is good is God. Jesus himself was saying those two terms are interchangeable. God alone is goodness. Which is putting us to God again and not to Jesus self. Mm -hmm. Jesus always pointed people to Marlene. When I read that, question i focused more on the word love um what does it mean to love god and um what i was sharing in the group is that to to truly love someone especially what jesus has been teaching his disciples all the way through is to basically put 
ourselves not in the front driver's seat, but to open ourselves to um, to someone else. So loving others is to not put our needs first. To love God is to take our ego out of the picture and and to really connect at at a core level like a like an infant would with a parent um to be dependent on god in every way to constantly turn to god as the source of life like an infant would um that that you know anyone can do that not just people of our particular faith tradition mm -hmm. I think that the concept of ego is hugely important. Mm -hmm. um, and, and yeah, it's exactly what you said. Just, and that's why Jesus brought these small children, because they have not developed the sense of ego yet. You know, I have a very good friend <coughs> who's atheist. And I think they're atheists because they're anti-religion, but I'm not sure. I don't know why they're atheists. But when we get together, we discuss God in the Bible. Often. Often. So I think, granted, okay, we'll give you the label atheist, but you're seeking. You are seeking something. And that something is def often defined by different religions, but it still comes down to love one another and love whatever you've been exposed to as your higher being. Mm -hmm. Love God. And I want to... I, mm -hmm. Go ahead, Julia. Um, I just, I was thinking... When we think about God, we it's complex, right? There's a, it's a trinity. It's God, Jesus, and the Holy Spirit. We don't quite understand it, but we know there is three in one. And in this verse, it says that to love God, you have to do it with your heart. So I'm thinking maybe that means physically, you know, you have to love God with your soul and with your mind and might. So uh, there's three pieces to how to love God. And then often in, we think loving God and then loving others, but it also includes loving yourself. And I think it's complex and is complicated because we have been taught, nope, you put others before yourself. And I think that to, for us to get a glimpse of who God is and it, for us to really learn to love others it almost has to be twisted and intertwined and we have to learn to accept and love ourselves, which is very difficult when we all come from various backgrounds, various wounds, family dynamics, church, her, you name it. So I think to answer the question, how do we love God? We also have to include learning to love what they created, which is they created us and they live in us and it's complex. And I don't quite know how to, it works who came first, God, us, others. It's, I, I think it's just one of those mystery things that, but it does have to include ourselves because I don't think that we can truly love others without first beginning to receive his love and accepting it and loving us ourselves. And I don't think it's a selfish thing. I think that is what they, they want us to experience a glimpse of their unconditional loves, which includes accepting it for us it's a paradox it's one of the paradoxes that giving up this ego laying our ego down before god leads to loving ourselves that we often as christians think that we are to reflect god we're to be god mirrors in the world and we are but we are also to be god sponges um, and to just sit and soak it up. 
And I am, I want to reiterate again, I am Christian. I I believe in Jesus, in the Trinity, in God and Jesus and the Holy Spirit. Um, I, and because, and the reason is because I find Jesus' words trustworthy. Mm-hmm. I find that Jesus' words lead to life and point me to God. And also because that's how I was born and raised, right? Mm-hmm. I think God would God would find me no matter where I was born and raised. Mm-hmm. I'm afraid I have to go back to work. We're about dead. Bye, We're about uh, dead. Take care, folks. Y'all have um, any um, additional comments? Erica's comment made me think of when I was teaching in a Christian school, and I had the um, preschoolers, and they learned a song for Christmas to the tune of Jingle Bells. And it went, J-O-Y, J-O-Y, this is what it means. Jesus first, yourself last, and others in between. (laughs) And we were taught that our entire lives, that Jesus came first, then others, and we were at the end of it. And... I think that that really is a fallacy because even Jesus said, love others the way you love yourself. So loving others does not mean we don't love ourselves. Right. Right. And just like the Trinity is not one or the other, but all at once. So is this command loving God Loving others and loving ourselves is not linear. It's all at once together. They are one cloth. All righty, folks, we're we're at our time's end. This has been just wonderful. And I will see you next yeah. week. Yes. Bye. Thank you. Thank you. Wow.